Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by Hillsdale College. Now in its 175th year, Hillsdale is a truly independent institution where learning is prized and intellectual enthusiasm is valued. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to Hillsdale for their sponsorship. He's here. He's here. Now broadcasting from the underground command post. Deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877 877-381-3811. 877-381-3811. It's amazing how the media conduct themselves, what becomes hot one minute, what doesn't the next. The main issue in the Roger Stone scandal now is the scandal of the trial and the Joey Foreman. I guess we call them four people now. So ridiculous. It's not even the sentencing issue. We have a federal judge now who must not go forward with any form of sentencing until this matter is clearly and carefully examined. I'm going to bring on somebody who I consider a brilliant lawyer. I've known him for decades. A former special assistant United States attorney where we're going to discuss exactly what took place here and what the judge should do and what the attorney general should do. I know tonight we're supposed to beat up on the president. I know tonight we're supposed to beat up on the attorney general. I know tonight I'm supposed to play audio of the ABC News interview of the attorney general. Who's getting a little upset with the tweets from the president involving cases and the department. And you can understand that. But you can also understand the situation the president's in too. He's been victimized by the Department of Justice. Clearly not under Barr, but under the prior regime and under Sessions. He's been victimized by the Department of Justice. He's been victimized by the FBI. He's been victimized by the FISA court. He's been victimized by various U.S. attorneys' offices, and he's been victimized by the media. And so... He sees what's taking place to Roger Stone. He sees an injustice and he tweets. On the other hand, Bill Barr is a truly remarkable and unique attorney general. He sees what's taking place. And he acts on it. But now he's under attack. And what he's saying is, you know, here I am taking steps to try and remedy what these four prosecutors have done. Now I come off like some kind of lackey, when I'm not. I'm making these decisions independently. The president's not telling me what to do. The president's even said he isn't telling him what to do. But from his perch, he prefer it wouldn't take place. But I want to focus on, from my perspective, what is a major, major issue here. Well, let's take a look at this as reported by Greg Ray at Fox News. 
Former Memphis, and I'm going to do this like nobody else, and I don't even know how the rest of them have done it. I just know how I do stuff. Former Memphis City Schools Board President Tomika Hart revealed yesterday that she was the foreperson of the jury that convicted former Trump advisor Roger Stone on obstruction charges last year, and soon afterward, her history of democratic activism and a string of her anti-Trump left-wing social media posts came to light. It's actually worse than that, but here we go. Hart even posted specifically, this is the point, about the Stone case before she was selected to sit on the jury. As she retweeted an argument mocking those who considered Stone's dramatic arrest in a pre-dawn raid by a federal tactical team to be excessive force. She also suggested President Trump and his supporters are racist and praised the investigation conducted by Special Counsel Robert Mueller, which ultimately led to Stone's prosecution. Now, Tamika Hart is an attorney. She had an obligation to come forward during the jury selection process and state that she couldn't be impartial and reveal her biases. Roger Stone's lawyers, I don't know that they did or not, had an obligation to really press these various potential jurors to determine if they could be impartial. Maybe they did. Maybe she was not forthcoming. But this is what it is. And what we're going to discuss in the next segment with Arthur Ferguson is what should the judge do about this now? As they go on and on tonight about impeaching Barr and impeaching the president. No, 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 no. That's not the issue. That is not the issue. Meanwhile, it emerged that, listen to this. This is the judge who I'm saying is quite liberal, partisan, appointed by Obama, almost snuck in by Obama. It emerged that U.S. District Judge Amy Berman Jackson had denied a defense request to strike a potential juror who was Obama-era press official with admitted anti-Trump views. Now, folks, this may be a so-called criminal trial, but it has very heavy political overlays. And this judge should have known that. She could have taken her time. She could have bent over backwards to make sure nobody on that jury had any kind of clearly overt political activity in their background that might even raise the suspicion of partiality. In fact, in her own case, being an Obama appointee, that doesn't in and of itself require her to recuse, but it's been more than obvious to me that when it came to Manafort and when it's come to this case, she's not capable of doing impartial justice, in my opinion. So an Obama-era press official with admitted anti-Trump views, listen to whose husband worked at the same Justice Department division that handled the probe leading the Stone's arrest. Uh, Do you get more conflicted than that? And another Stone juror, Seth Cousins, donated to former Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke and other progressive causes, federal election records reviewed by Fox News show. You can find 12 jurors who don't contribute to campaigns, who didn't work in the same unit at the Department of Justice, 
whose wife didn't, or spouse, I should say, or don't have these ties to the Obama administration. And so this is really what we've learned today. Now, I understand the entire reason Congress exists today is to try to destroy the president and everybody around him. To try and create fissures between the president and his staff, between the president and his cabinet. I got it. And I understand we have a media today that is gutless, that is left-wing, and that is destructive. I got it. And so it's important that we, on this program, you Levinites understand what the real issue is today. The real issue is today that this was not an impartial jury. Starting at the top with the foreman. With the foreman. And the question is now, what should be done about this? What should the judge do about it? The attorney general and the Department of Justice do about it. And that's the issue that I want to discuss with you in the next segment. We'll be right back. You've heard me talk about the four pillars of education at Hillsdale College. Now, these four pillars or purposes, learning, character, faith, and freedom, have defined Hillsdale's mission since 1844. I'd like to focus on the first pillar, learning. Hillsdale understands, as America's founders did, that a proper education is essential to preserving free government. Among other things, young people must be taught about America's great heritage of liberty. They must be taught about how government works and the importance of the Constitution. And they must develop the skills to become useful citizens and the virtues required for self-government. Because so many high schools, colleges, and universities fall short in these areas today, Hillsdale has expanded its mission nationwide. For example through its free online courses, its free monthly speech digest and primus, and the classical K-12 through charter schools it's helping to found coast-to-coast. Discover how you and your children can learn from Hillsdale College, too. Go to levinforhillsdale.com. I misfired a little. We're going to have Arthur at 6.30 because I wanted to continue to lay out the uh, predicate here, the factual predicate on Tamika Hart. Now, the drama began, as Fox News writes, when Hart confirmed to CNN and other media organizations yesterday that she had written a Facebook post supporting the Justice Department prosecutors in the Stone case, who abruptly stepped down from their posts, saying she can't keep quiet any longer. The prosecutors apparently objected after senior DOJ officials overrode the recommendation. Actually, the senior DOJ officials were sandbagged by these guys. But she posted, I want to stand up for Aaron Zelinsky, Adam Jed, Michael Morando, and Jonathan Kravis. The prosecutors on the Roger Stone trial, Hart wrote in the Post, this was a jury foreman, pains me to see the DOG now interfere with the hard work of the prosecutors. They acted with the utmost intelligence, integrity, and respect for our system of justice. And she added, as foreperson of the jury, I made sure we went through every element of every charge matching the evidence presented in the case that led us to return a conviction of guilty on all seven counts. And by the way, it was very fast. Independent journalist Michael Chernovich. Now, I don't know this guy. He's always attacked 
But he seems to come up with some interesting information from time to time like this. Not CNN. Not CNN then first reported that a slew of Hart's other publicly available Twitter and Facebook posts readily suggested a strong political bias. And some of Hart's posts were written as Stone's trial was in progress. As Stone's trial was in progress. Hart, who unsuccessfully ran for Congress as a Democrat in 2012, quoted someone in an August 2017 tweet referring to Trump as a member of the KKK. In January 2019, she retweeted a post by pundit Bakari Sellers, who noted that Roger Stone has y'all talking about reviewing use of force guidelines before suggesting that racism was the reason for all the attention Stone's arrest had received from conservatives. I mean, it's one brutal post after another. Most of her posts were from before she was selected to sit on Stone's jury, late 2019. But on November 15, 2019, the day she voted to convict Stone on seven counts of obstruction, witness tampering, and making false statements to Congress, Hart tweeted two heart emojis, followed by two fist pump emojis. Unbelievable. Hart's tweet linked to a Facebook post that has since been taken down from public view. So what did she mean by that, Mr. Producer? Sounds like she was celebrating, doesn't it? Celebrating. If Hart had provided misleading answers on a jury form concerning her political or social media activity or views on Trump and the Russia probe or other related matters, there could be grounds for Stone's team to seek a new trial, legal experts told Fox. Well, of course. And there could be grounds... Well, I'll wait for Arthur Ferguson. He and I have already talked. There could be grounds for other things, too. Hart's pretty much in hiding right now. Hart's post surfaced the same day that Judge Jackson, who oversaw the Stone case, unsealed her order from earlier this month, denying Stone's request for a new trial. Stone's team argued that an unnamed juror had misled the court concerning his or her exposure to the media during the case, and also had some potential bias because of his or her work with the IRS, which sometimes has interfaced with the DOJ on criminal matters. But Jackson shot down the motion. There's an Obama judge for a new trial, saying the juror's potential bias was not demonstrated. And even if it were, it wasn't significant enough to warrant the drastic step of calling a new trial. I I don't know what the hell this judge is talking about. If it's the same juror we're talking about. Courts allow for a new trial, she wrote the judge, when a serious miscarriage of justice may have occurred. Bias is a permissible reason to remove a juror, call for a new trial only in extreme situations where the relationship between a prospective juror and some aspect of the litigation is such that it's highly unlikely that the average person can remain impartial in his deliberations under the circumstances. Oh, a textualist. Nonetheless, this is that case. Jackson, who was appointed to the bench by President Barack Obama, also took a shot at Stone's defense team for failing to uncover the information sooner. Really? Maybe so. 
but you don't take it out on the defendant. And in fact, what the judge has done here in her own kind of imbecilic way, as she has told Roger Stone, that your lawyers should have found this out sooner and brought it to her attention. So the judge has exposed herself on two fronts. Number one, that it is not inconsequential. And number two, that it appears Roger Stone did not have adequate assistance of counsel. Is that not, in essence, what she's saying, Mr. Producer? Leave it to me. I know this stuff. So here we are, ladies and gentlemen. Desperate effort to throw this guy, who's really mostly clownish, but to throw him in prison for nine years. For nine years. I can assure you, I can assure you, that if Roger Stone was not Roger Stone, that if Roger Stone had been a longtime operative for Barack Obama or Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer, that this case would be treated much differently by the press, by the political world, and by the court. This to me is in some ways, oddly enough, because I'm no fan of this guy, but that is irrelevant. Justice is truly supposed to be blind. Oddly enough, this has turned into some kind of civil rights case. You have multiple jurors, but one in particular, who were incapable of carrying out their duty of impartiality. This isn't the Senate trial during impeachment. This is where there's really supposed to be impartiality. In a federal courtroom. It may well be that Stone's lawyer screwed up. It may well be that this jury foreman withheld information about herself. The fact of the matter is, you have a man who's going to go to prison, and if these four prosecutors and the Democrats have their way, for nearly a decade, who did not have a fair trial. That's the bottom line. I'll be right back. You've heard me talk about the four pillars of education at Hillsdale College. Now, these four pillars or purposes, learning, character, faith, and freedom, have defined Hillsdale's mission since 1844. I'd like to focus on the first pillar, learning. Hillsdale understands, as America's founders did, that a proper education is essential to preserving free government. Among other things, young people must be taught about America's great heritage of liberty. They must be taught about how government works and the importance of the Constitution. And they must develop the skills to become useful citizens and the virtues required for self-government. Because so many high schools, colleges, and universities fall short in these areas today, Hillsdale has expanded its mission nationwide. For example, through its free online courses, its free monthly speech digest and primus, and the classical K-12 through charter schools it's helping to found coast-to-coast. Discover how you and your children can learn from Hillsdale College, too. Go to levinforhillsdale.com. If you're trying to reach 
Mark on the air. Call him at 877-381-3811. The Mark Levin Radio Show continues. Arthur Ferguson is a former special assistant United States attorney with serious litigation experience. He's in private practice now. He practices all kinds of law. He's a friend of mine for about 40 years, I'd say. Arthur, now, you've had an opportunity to look at this. What do you make of all this with the Roger Stone case? I am deeply troubled, and the Department of Justice should be deeply troubled. Um, I am most troubled by the uh, four-person, four-lady, foreman, whatever you want to call her, um, having communications, retweeting communications directly related to the case on two occasions. Um, The investigation seems to support this by an independent um, uh, uh, investigator, uh, uh, reporter. Journalist. She she mocked one retweet. The tweet was mocking concerns about the, um, um, the overwhelming force uh, employed to arrest, raid and arrest Roger Stone. Um, and the tweet listed names, and I didn't know them, but probably some um, uh, progressive list of people who were wrongly, for whatever reason, arrested. And then the other one was discussing the indictment. And this was before she was chosen. That, mm-hmm. and now her defense is that she in in the report, she said she was very fair. She went through the um, uh, when when she was for a person. She went through the complaint um, uh, and the elements of the criminal charges one by one by one by one. That is preposterous. She should never have been on the jury. Um, uh, and we know, I know, and you know, uh, in juries, people um, uh, uh, have their interests. Um, uh, affected through persuasion, how they organize the discussion. That's why if this had been disclosed, if she retweeted these and it had been disclosed, she would never have been let on that jury. There would have been um, uh, a motion to strike for cause to exclude her, and it would have been granted. This should be investigated, and I would hope that all people of goodwill, uh, of whatever political persuasion, would join in seeking an investigation of this and in stopping the sentencing. The United States should investigate it. If I were the judge, I would be concerned because the foreperson, depending on the questions, of course, the veneer, the group of people who are examined to be on the jury, um, uh, take an oath to tell the truth. They are sworn in before the questions are asked. And they're asked both general and specific questions about their knowledge of and involvement in the facts. Do they know? What do they know? Could they put aside any prejudices and render a just verdict and listen to the evidence? At that point, and depending upon the questions, she had an obligation to disclose that she had retweeted these two, if she did. Now, Arthur Ferguson, she also, she also tweeted on the day of the, of the holding, emojis suggesting she was celebrating. 
Well, that's wildly inappropriate. And that should be used to show because it is, I don't care who the defendant is. Could be Attila the Hun. It could be Bill Clinton. Um, I, every defendant, and I hope to do this when I was a prosecutor, is entitled to a fair trial. And it is a solemn obligation by every member of the jury to uh, take their oath seriously. And when you find someone guilty, to accept that it is an awesome responsibility and not something to celebrate. Now, she's also independently an attorney. Does she not, therefore, have an obligation to come forward on her own? Or does she have to sit there and say, gee, if they don't ask me the right question, I guess I get to stay? I believe she had an obligation. Mm-hmm. She had an obligation. She should be investigated. The court should demand that. And the United States should demand that. Well, I think here's what I, I would say. See if you agree. <clears throat> if I'm a federal judge and this took place in my courtroom, I wouldn't sit around splitting hairs. I would demand an, invest, an evidentiary investigation to determine exactly what this woman, woman said, exactly what she knew exactly how she conducted herself in order to determine whether, in fact, Roger Stone did have a fair trial before you send somebody off to prison. This occurred in this judge's courtroom. And by the way, you read the article. She was, in my view, maybe not yours, a little lax when it came to some of these other jurors, one in particular whose spouse works in the same division. Okay, that's fine. But to me, this foreman, it is a no-brainer. And if the court had taken its time and allowed the process to take its course, rather than herring up to get a trial and so forth, a Mickey Mouse trial, by the way, I must say, having nothing to do with Russia collusion or anything of the sort, but okay, put that aside, then there might have been a better outcome in terms of the selection of jurors. But this well, is a major taint on the federal yeah. court system. Shouldn't the judge turn to right. Barr and the Department of Justice and say, now that I have learned this, regardless of whether or not it was brought to me by Roger Stone's counsel, I independently am aware of this, like the FISA court. I need to get to the bottom of this. She does. And she should require the Department of Justice to do an investigation and report to her to see whether, if, if this, if the facts set forth in the article are true, which is part of the investigation, which shouldn't be difficult to find out, then there is a taint and the conviction should be thrown out. That is, that I think. Is, 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 no this, not, is this not an obstruction if the, and I'm not saying she did, I don't know, but if the foreman conducted herself in such a way as to conceal her, her partiality or didn't answer honestly, or something along those lines, is that not obstructing justice? I believe that the investigation should go into the four ladies or the foreman's um, uh, actions to investigate whether there has been an obstruction or perjury with respect to her participation. And celebrating the conviction is outrageous. No person should do that. No, no human being should do that. You don't celebrate 
a conviction. And you're the foreman. On the day that it's announced, you're putting out emojis that are celebratory? That's wildly inappropriate. But but it's consistent with her pattern, is it not? Yes, I believe it would be relevant to the court's consideration and to the investigation by the United States. Now, the 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 sentencing should be postponed. The Department of Justice should conduct an investigation that that need not be extensive, at least for the taint issue. It should be resolved promptly, and the department should decide whether it is appropriate to um, um, uh, have a retrial. And that goes to the extent of financial harm that Roger Stone has suffered by going through this trial. And the question is, should he go into another trial, or should the government drop it with prejudice the complaint in light of the prejudice that Roger Stone has faced by going through this entire Here, trial? Here's the problem, Arthur Ferguson. You've heard the Democrats on the Hill. You've been listening and watching the media. They are gunning yet again for Bill Barr because he he was sandbagged by these four prosecutors, apparently. No way seven to nine years that justice, Maine Justice hold the U.S. Attorney's Office. I think the American people need to understand Maine Justice is in charge, not the U.S. Attorney's Office. U.S. Attorney's 93 offices, they report to the Attorney General. And, yes, and, and the yeah. last that I heard, we had a unitary executive, mm-hmm. and the president um, is in charge of the whole thing of, of, of Article 2. He is the head of Article 2. Now, I'm talking to you from Stanton, Virginia, where Woodrow Wilson established the Leviathan of government. He was also our most racist president. It's where he was born. But that does not take away the power of the president to, to affect and to direct the actions of the executive branch in all of its particulars. Well, he's under attack tonight for tweeting. Now, I just I mean, want to point something out to you. I want to move this into another direction. Yes. And it's very important that the American people understand this. We've now reached a point in this country where justice is not the issue. And I'll tell you exactly what I'm talking about. Sure. Justice is not the issue. Who's interfering with this case now? The Democrats are demanding that Barr be impeached or that he's corrupt or that he's a toady because he's decided to change the sentencing recommendation. They came out at a line of attorneys from a U.S. attorney's office in Washington, D.C., which had sandbagged Maine Justice in the first instance. It was not their understanding of Maine Justice that this was what they were going to propose seven to nine years. That's number one. Number two, if Bill Barr does what needs to be done, first the judge ought to intercede. But if Bill Barr on his own says, you know what, we're urging the court, hold off, we're going to investigate this, he'll come under even more of an attack by the Democrats and the media. They'll claim that he's not only defending Trump, now now he's trying to, to be a special pleader for Roger Stone. They don't talk about justice. You said something early in this discussion. You said people of goodwill. We have a lot of people who don't have goodwill. And it's very interesting to me 
that with all the talk about the president's tweets, not a word about what Nancy Pelosi said today, not a word about what Chuck Schumer said today, and a whole conga line of Democrats and commentators in the media. The only person who's not allowed to speak, apparently, is the president of the United States. That said, these people are not about justice. Go ahead. And he is the only one with authority as the head of the Article II branch of government to direct the actions of the government uh, and any of its instrumentalities and any of its people. He's in charge. That's what the Constitution says. Now, you can disagree with him on the merits, but to say this is an obstruction or that this is perverting justice is, is not only outrageous, but it, is, it, it, it speaks of a fundamental misunderstanding of the most basic provisions in the Constitution. And he's not calling the shots. He's, he's, he's almost uh, giving color commentary in, a, in, a, in, a, in an interesting way. But that aside, yes. what's happening now, what the Democrats and the media and others are doing, are making it extraordinarily difficult for the Attorney General, if he chooses to, to take a, the step unilaterally to halt this from the point of view of the government and to conduct a, not just an investigation, a potentially criminal investigation... This is why it's important that, for once, the judiciary stand up and do the right thing. The FISA court was alerted, both by Capitol Hill and, quite frankly, Landmark Legal Foundation. They were alerted that the information they provided was not accurate, that they were provided in issuing those, uh, those search warrants. Yet they issued those warrants four times. And they still haven't reformed themselves. I mean, that court... They still didn't, they never held a, a contempt hearing, an evidentiary hearing. They had every reason to do it. And now we have this judge. We have public information. She doesn't need some lawyer to tell her this, Arthur. She has public information now that should cause her to stop in, to, to stop in her steps and to say, oh, my God, this took place in my courtroom? We better get to the bottom of this. Yes. Getting to the bottom of it with respect to the potential... Um, uh, liability of 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 the forelady uh, because of what she disclosed or did not disclose under what questions she was asked and her performance of her obligations. Now, this does not require that the court go behind the deliberations. This is on its face, facially right. tainted. You know, the courts, as you know, don't like to go into deliberations and throw out a verdict because there was something wrong in the deliberations. No, but, but you're right. I just want to, we're going to have to go. But I, I, I want to crystallize this quickly. What you're saying is, if you have a bad juror, then it's over. That's enough. That's all you need to know. Yes. And do that now to end it with Roger Stone and then investigate more with the four ladies. You don't need much. If this is true, that's tainted, and the Department of Justice, independent of the judge, can say, we're not going forward with the sentence. We're going to agree to this. And that is exactly why the Democrats and the media are pounding the hell out of bar, because they want Stone thrown prison for seven to nine years. They want to claim it has something to do with Russia when it has nothing to do with Russia. And that's where they are. This is very, there's a very dangerous time here. What's happened to our criminal justice system in this administration and the attack on this administration? Arthur Ferguson, I want to thank you. God bless you, my friend. We'll be right back. 
Mark Levin. You've heard me talk about the four pillars of education at Hillsdale College. Now, these four pillars or purposes, learning, character, faith, and freedom, have defined Hillsdale's mission since 1844. I'd like to focus on the first pillar, learning. Hillsdale understands, as America's founders did, that a proper education is essential to preserving free government. Among other things, young people must be taught about America's great heritage of liberty. They must be taught about how government works and the importance of the Constitution. And they must develop the skills to become useful citizens and the virtues required for self-government. Because so many high schools, colleges, and universities fall short in these areas today, Hillsdale has expanded its mission nationwide. For example, through its free online courses, its free monthly speech digest and primus, and the classical K-12 through charter schools it's helping to found coast-to-coast. Discover how you and your children can learn from Hillsdale College, too. Go to levinforhillsdale.com. Neither the president nor the attorney general have done a damn thing wrong. This isn't the right focus. This story should be about the foreman. And if it's accurate, if this story about the foreman's accurate, Roger Stone didn't get a fair trial. And this trial, and the outcome of this trial, should be ended. Trial's already over, but the case should be tossed. And I know the left, the Democrats, the media, all the same, will fight like hell. But ladies and gentlemen, they wouldn't be happy unless he... And others, Manafort, President, were hanging by telephone poles by their toes. I hope this starts to refocus the nation in some way. I hope the backbenchers pick up on this tomorrow. It's crucially important. The issue about the foreman isn't just a political issue. This federal judge has an obligation to clean this up. This federal judge has an obligation. She's in charge of her damn courtroom. She has an obligation to figure out whether these reports are accurate. And if they are, she has an obligation, she knows it, to end this. That's the truth. I'll be right back. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post... Deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. A lot of drama in Washington today, but drama in the wrong direction. Let me just underscore and reiterate, and then we'll move along for now. Neither the president nor the attorney general have done a damn thing wrong. And the sentencing isn't the right focus in the Stone case. Not now. It's whether the trial was corrupted and whether Stone received a fair trial. If this story about the foreman is accurate, 
The federal judge should be appalled at what took place in her courtroom, and she has a duty to determine what exactly took place in her courtroom. She doesn't even know right now. She's going to proceed to sentencing? She should direct the DOJ to undertake an immediate and quick time deadline investigation into the foreman's behavior from her selection to her tweeting. And if you want to see interference by outside third parties and politicians in a judicial matter, listen to what Pelosi and Schumer and virtually every Democrat and most of the media are demanding. That main justice not manage line prosecutors. Line prosecutors, they're not even U.S. attorneys. When the latter act in ways that are widely criticized as excessive and unjust. That would be preposterous. And their constant demands for the Attorney General's impeachment or resignation are intended to intimidate him and prevent him from acting responsibly. That's what this is all about. That's what this is all about. So, uh, I'm going to move on now, but we're going to keep an eye on this. We're going to keep an eye on this. And we will continue to pound away, because if I don't, who the hell is going to? I don't say that with bravado, it's just that this is my background. I know more about it than, than a lot of people, and when I don't, I bring in people who do. Uh, and I'm going to be posting about on this uh, immediately. I just sent something to Mr. Producer. All right. I want to read something to you. This is from an op-ed in the New York Times, September 8, 2009. This so drew my attention way back when that I quoted from it in Liberty and Tyranny. But I remembered it. And I went back. The headline of this op-ed, and I'll tell you who wrote it in a moment, Our One Party Democracy, again, 2009. And he writes, watching both the health care and climate energy debates in Congress. See, they didn't use climate change back then. That would come later. It is hard not to draw the following conclusion. Listen to this. There's only one thing worse than one-party autocracy. That is one-party democracy, which is what we have in America. Now, one-party autocracy, ladies and gentlemen, is Marxism or fascism and combinations thereof. So what this author is saying is, the only thing worse than that is one-party democracy. Now, what does he mean by that? He says one-party autocracy certainly has its drawbacks. But when it is led by a reasonably enlightened group of people, as China is today, as China is today, it can also have great advantages. That one party can just impose the politically difficult but critically important policies needed to move a society into the 21st century. It's not an accident that China is committed to overtaking us in electric cars, solar power, energy efficiency, batteries, nuclear power, and wind power. China's leaders understand that in a world of exploding populations and rising emerging market middle classes, demand for clean power... And energy efficiency is going to soar. Beijing wants to make sure that its 
it, it's own, it owns that industry and is ordering the policies to do that, including boosting gasoline prices from the top down. Now, first of all, this description of Red China is so outrageously fanciful and propagandistic that the writer is a, is a mouthpiece for a genocidal, brutal regime. But he goes on. <clears throat> Our one-party democracy is worse. And by the way, notice in that paragraph, this op-ed writer doesn't even note what the Chinese do to their own people. What it's done to the Tibetans, to the Muslims, even back then, to the Christians. What it does to people who step out of line. And of course, it's gotten worse since 2009, as you would expect. It's a one-party autocracy. Now, our, our one-party democracy is worse, he writes. The fact is, <clears throat> excuse me, on both the energy climate legislation and healthcare legislation, only the Democrats are really playing. With a few notable exceptions, the Republican Party is standing, arms folded and saying no. Many of them just want President Obama to fail. So he's very angry. This is Obama, comes into office, has all these radical ideas, and the Republicans are trying to block him. And what this writer is saying is, that is worse than what takes place in China. At least in China, they can use the iron fist and centralized autocracy to get something done. Many of them just want President Obama to fail. Such a waste. Mr. Obama is not a socialist. He's a centrist. But if he's forced to depend entirely on his own party to pass legislation, he will be whipsawed by its different factions. Look at the climate energy bill. Again, they don't call it it's so quaint, isn't it? They don't call it climate change back then. They came out of the House. Its sponsors had to work twice as hard to produce the breathtaking cap-and-trade legislation. Why? Because with basically no Republican representatives willing to vote for any price on carbon that would stimulate investments in clean energy and energy efficiency, the sponsors had to rely entirely on Democrats. And that meant paying off coal state and agriculture Democrats with pork. And by the way, how's that clean energy industry going in China? It is a filthy, polluted country. The worst polluter on the face of the earth. But let's not let facts get in the way. But it could have been much better. And it can be in the Senate. Just give me 8 to 10 Republicans ready to impose some price on carbon. And they can be leveraged against Democrats who want to water down the bill. China is going to eat our lunch and take our jobs on clean energy, an industry that we largely invented. And they're going to do it with a managed economy we don't have and don't want, said Joe Roman, who writes the blog climateprogress.org. China was never going to build its industries on clean energy. But let me go on. The only way for us to match them is by legislating a rising carbon... Listen to this guy. This guy's an op-ed writer. He's got the whole energy economy thing figured out. We just need more taxes, more regulation, more management. And by God, my vision for this country would be so great if I had an iron fist. Instead, we have these Republicans standing in the way with their arms folded. And the only way for us to match them is by legislating a rise in carbon price. 
along with efficiency and renewable standards that will stimulate massive private investment in clean tech. Hard to do with a one-party democracy, and it goes on. Now, the author of this piece has won four Pulitzer Prizes. He's considered an icon, certainly not by me. He is a marquee writer for the New York Times, and his name is Thomas Friedman. And everybody holds their breath but me when this guy writes and speaks. Now look what's going on in China today. Look at the gulags. Look at the internment camps. Look at the genocide. Look at the deadly virus now. 60 million people quarantined. Look how they're destroying Hong Kong. Yes, one-party autocracies, it certainly has its drawbacks. That's a little passive, don't you say? But when it's led by a reasonably enlightened group of people, see Thomas Friedman, here's the problem. We don't know who's going to lead it. We don't know who's going to ultimately run it. But if you're saying you support benevolent fascism, or benevolent Marxism, there is no such thing. And yet that's what you argue for. Now, Thomas Frieden married the daughter of a billionaire. He lives in a massive mansion in a suburb of Washington, D.C., in Maryland. He suffers for nothing. His... He's been writing recently in support of the candidacy of Michael Bloomberg, an American oligarch. Now, why do I call him that? Because Michael Bloomberg has not participated in a single debate. He skipped Iowa. He skipped New Hampshire. He spent 300 to $350 million on ads without actually participating in the process. And he absolutely seeks to buy the presidency. He spent an enormous amount of money in collusion with George Soros to buy the state legislature in Virginia for the Democrats. And they're doing this all over the country. Well, they talk about the little guy. Well, they talk about Billionaires need to pay their fair share. Well, they talk like modern-day, quote, democratic socialists, unquote. What they are are crony capitalists. Michael Bloomberg will do or say whatever the hell he has to do or say for power. And just like Thomas Friedman, who was a mouthpiece for the genocidal regime in China, Founded in so many ways, an improvement over our system, our slow, methodical system. All the great things that can be accomplished with autocracy. And by the way, Thomas Friedman, try being a columnist in China and disagreeing with that country. Oh, you know, it has its setbacks. No, 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 no. You'd be thrown in prison where you'd starve to death. You wouldn't be living off your wife's money either. 
she wouldn't have that money. But that aside, the hypocrisy and the contradictions aside, I am convinced Michael Bloomberg is running in part against Donald Trump and will do anything to defeat Donald Trump because of his ties and associations with the communist regime in China, which his friend Thomas Friedman has defended for decades. For decades. As an improvement over our system. Michael Bloomberg doesn't believe in our system. When he came up against the cap of two-term limits in New York City, he spent his money to buy a third limit, a third term, to move the limit. When he doesn't like what a particular state legislature is doing, he pours in an enormous amount of money. Nobody can match it. They can't even try to match it. In order to flood the field with propaganda on television, particularly in the suburbs. And it works. Up to now. Now he wants to run for president, but he really hasn't run for president yet. No debates, no states. Now he'll get involved, you see. I think Joe Biden is a disaster, but you have to give him his due. He knew he was going to lose in Iowa. He knew he was going to lose in New Hampshire. But he went there anyway. Bloomberg did not. He doesn't have a 50-state strategy. He has a what-states-can-I-buy strategy. Why exactly does Bloomberg want to be president? Can you give me three reasons? No, you can't. He's a chameleon. But with Thomas Friedman endorsing Bloomberg, Thomas Friedman endorsing the genocidal Marxist regime in China, Bloomberg defending the genocidal Marxist regime in China, and Trump actually standing up to it and trying to deal with it. Now you know why I read you that piece from Thomas Friedman. Now you know why a few weeks ago I spent time exposing Michael Bloomberg in that January 1st Washington Compost piece, which was stunning. But that's why they ran it on January 1st, because they knew, well, that's New Year's Eve. Nobody gives a damn about reading the Washington Post, let alone a piece about Bloomberg in China. And nobody did, which is why I circled back and read it to you. And they call Trump a dictator when he takes on the dictators. Colluded with Russia when he's put in place the most severe sanctions against Russia of any modern president. When he's confronted China like no modern president. We are drowning in dishonest propaganda, while dishonest media, aggressive propaganda, day in and day out, issue after issue in order to try and force you to make the wrong decisions rather than allow you to understand what's taking place and make the right decisions. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. 
So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. a lot to get to, and I intend to get to it, and I want to start on another matter, and uh, we'll probably have to take it after the bottom of the hour. There was an appalling vote, some of you may be sucked in by this because of the code pink Republicans, they're on the rise, the the nation has faced cycles like this, of isolationism uh, during its, its history, and the result has been very severe, costly wars. Because the enemy doesn't sit still. And most of the people who are isolationists wrap themselves in the Constitution and the War Declaration Clause because they don't even understand the War Declaration Clause. And that includes Rand Paul and my dear friend Mike Lee. And so today, uh, 55 to 45 vote to pass a War Powers Resolution which I'm sure the president will wisely veto, that says Trump must win approval from Congress before engaging in further military action against Iran. And the eight Republicans, whose names I will give you, and the Democrats who went along with this, they want you to believe that Congress has surrendered the war-making power to a president, and they need to take it back. And you've heard this mantra... And it is a lie. And I'm going to tell you why as soon as we return. Mark Luffin, an unapologetic patriot and unapologetic constitutionalist. You can reach him at 877-381-3811. The fact is, World War II, from an American perspective, didn't happen because our president, Franklin Roosevelt, was a warmonger, or because we spent too much on the military, or because we were globalists. It happened for many reasons, including one We were not prepared. As a result, we took enormous casualties early on. When I hear these superficial, smooth-talking buffoons accuse everybody who doesn't accept their attitude toward the Constitution war powers, and the commander-in-chief. As wanting war, 
You need to understand, these code pink Republicans are carrying the same flag as Bernie Sanders and his army of morons. Our enemies don't wait. This idea that Congress has surrendered its war-making power to the executive. Let me ask you a question, ladies and gentlemen. How did the Vietnam War end? What happened? Many of you are too young to remember. Do you know, Mr. Producer? Congress cut off all funds. Not one penny could be used, not even to supply the South Vietnamese military. It cut off all funds, and it had a veto-proof Congress. That war came to an end. Do you know why Rand Paul and Lamar Alexander and Jerry Moran and Susan Collins and Mike Lee and one or two others, you know why they don't propose cutting off funding for this, that, or the other thing? Because they don't have the votes. They don't have the votes. The Constitution is a magnificent document. Now the idea you're going to pass a war powers law, I guess, related to the president in Iran, saying that the president can't take really effectively any military action in Iran without approval from Congress, seems superfluous. Superfluous. Now, maybe these Republicans, forget the Democrats, maybe these Republicans give us a long list so we can all know when exactly a president can act because the Constitution puts him in charge of the daily operation of the United States military. The Constitution speaks of him as defending us. Maybe they can give us a list rather than their platitudes and their BS and let us know exactly when a president can or can't act. If our armed forces are about to be hit in the field, can he act? Does it have to be imminent? And what sources have to tell him if it's imminent? To what extent can he use military action if our armed forces are going to be hit? I can go on and on with scenario after scenario after scenario. And so I think that these eight Republicans in particular have an obligation. Murkowski, Alexander, Lee, Paul, Moran, I'm doing this off the top of my head, Collins, two others. They have a duty to give us their blueprint that they would like us to project upon the United States Constitution. You know, to show you how intellectually dishonest they are and illogical they are, Even the actual War Powers Act of 1973, it assumes that the president has the authority to take initial military action. They just want to know about it over a period of time. So nobody assumes that a president can't. But if you're trying in some ill-defined, no, undefined way to to create some kind of standard or rules that a commander-in-chief must follow, 
then I think he needs to know and we need to know exactly what they are. So under exactly what circumstances and conditions can a president pull a trigger and for how long and how much? And how does he know in advance? And how is doing something that doesn't comply with whatever Congress says a violation of his duty as commander-in-chief? As I say, Congress can make quick work of this. They can vote to defund military activity, but they don't have the votes. They could vote today to end all funding for any military activity in Afghanistan. So why don't they? Because apparently, I assume, they don't have the votes. They can vote today to end all potential military activity against Iran. So why don't they? Because they don't have the votes. And so, truthfully, this is a very squirrely, in my view, intellectually dishonest attempt to use the Constitution to advance a policy agenda. A policy agenda that you can't get through the front door. If I thought these eight Republicans were right, I'd stand next to them. I'd stand by them. But they're not. And it's particularly revealing when their mouthpieces in the press resort to ad hominem attacks on the people with whom they disagree. Uh, this is, you know, the war bureaucracy and the war this and the war that. No, it's actually the life bureaucracy. When you see clouds building, storm clouds building, let me do it this way. Why do you think Churchill will go down in history a thousand years from now as one of the greatest men to ever serve other men? Because he saw the rise of Hitler. His countrymen didn't want to believe it. His own political party didn't want to believe it. He became an outcast. He became an outcast. And as a result, Britain was not prepared. And Britain almost ceased to exist. And the casualties were unimaginable. What was Churchill then? A warmonger? Now this is not to say, as the simpletons would argue, that those of us who actually understand the Constitution and its relationship to the presidency and Congress and to warfare, that we want war. Did I say I want war? I don't want war. On the other, t- on the other hand, every time the president acts, even this president, this president has made it abundantly clear he doesn't want war through his actions and his words. When he strikes back at the leading terrorist in the world for striking at Americans, these same people, not all of them, but most of them, Rand Paul and others, not Lee in this case, claim that his act, that act, could cause World War III. And really, it was a provocation. Remember, they kept calling it a provocation. Remember that, Mr. Producer? The code pink Republicans in Congress and in the press 
and their dear friends of the Bernie Sanders campaign. A provocation. They attacked us. So you've got to follow the logical stream of where these people are coming from, and you'll find out how illogical it is. But I demand to know from these eight Republicans the list, the blueprint that they seek to impose upon the presidency, the commander-in-chief, and this president. All the circumstances that they've worked out through their heads on Capitol Hill with their young staffers. Eating in the cafeteria a bologna sandwich. Who do not have access to the vast majority of information that a president does. But they can tell us all the circumstances in which a president is to act or not act. Because under their theory, even the 1973 War Powers Act doesn't go far enough where it provides a period of time for a president to act. Why should it? So we need to know exactly what they're talking about. When you see Murkowski and Collins and Alexander vote for something, you know they're voting this way because they're contrarians. They're more concerned about the narrative and their positioning. Oh, look at this. Independent, thoughtful, Centrist Republicans. Then you have Rand Paul, chip off the old father's block. He's just a bomb thrower. He's just a bomb thrower for isolationism. That's part of his radical ideology. There's a lot about his ideology I like. I like the way he fought this impeachment stuff. I tell you the truth. I tell you what I feel. I give credit where credit's due. But I also call them out. And my dear friend Mike Lee, a constitutionalist, has this so wrong in my opinion. He's moved over more to the, to the Rand Paul position. But the Constitution is not to be interpreted from an ideological perspective. I told you that Ben Shapiro in his Sunday interview show, he asked a wonderful question. Something to the effect, you know, how do you interpret the Constitution? There are people from a libertarian perspective. I don't interpret it from any perspective other than trying to intuit or discern what the framers intended. What the framers intended. You know, I want to take a minute and talk to you about the MRC, or as I like to call them, America's Media Watchdog. Every day, the Media Research Center provides reliable, fact-driven information about the media because the American people deserve the truth. Unfortunately, we don't get the truth from the media today. Just look at their shameful coverage of the impeachment trial. The media have pushed for impeachment since our president was elected, and they'll do anything to take him down. And that's why, look at them now, with the Roger Stone nonsense. And that's why the work of the MRC is so important. They hold the media accountable on a daily basis, calling out their absurd claims. No one can stop the media from being dishonest. But the MRC helps me and a lot of other people educate the American people so they no longer trust a partisan Democrat Party progressive media, an unfree press, as I call them. And you can learn a lot more about this. You can learn a lot more about the MRC. It's very simple. Go to mrclevin.org, mrclevin.org. There are only a handful of conservative organizations that have a real daily impact in the fight to save our country, and the MRC is one of them. 
you care about this country, and you do, if you care about the truth, and you do, you should get to know the MRC. It's very simple. MRCLEVIN.org. That's MRCLEVIN.org. Now, by the way, the WPHT event that I've talked to you about twice, just twice, for a few minutes, is sold out. So I warned folks in the Philadelphia area, the metropolitan area, Delmarva, anyway, uh, that this would happen. It's no brag, just fact. When I go to these events, they sell out very, very quickly. It's like the Reagan Library. When I have a book come out, it sells out within 10 minutes. And you have to act very, very quickly because I do not go to a lot of uh, to these events. Uh, but we will have our event in the Philadelphia area on March 7th. And it is sold out. And I will be right back. Mark Levin. Now, you all know what tomorrow is? You know, it's Valentine's Day, right? You know, Valentine's Day is a day that should inspire you. It inspires me. You tell your loved ones all the time that you love them, right? But this is a day that's put aside by the entire nation. There's something really cool about Valentine's Day. I feel that way. Now, just because she says she doesn't want anything for Valentine's Day doesn't mean she doesn't deserve anything. And you're running out of time, and I'm going to help you, but you've got to act now. Books Co. B-O-U-Q-S. They have you covered if you act now. Books Co. B-O-U-Q-S, as in bouquets of flowers. They offer beautiful, farm-fresh, sustainably sourced flowers, for next or same day delivery. Order today. And on a select number of bouquets, you still get 25% off your entire purchase. But you need to go now. And here's how you do it. I'm going to tell you how you do it. It's nice and easy. Go to books.com. B-O-U-G-S. B-O-U, excuse me. B-O-U-Q-S. I got this. B-O-U-Q-S. Dot com slash Levin, L-E-V-I-N. See, we make it tough for you so you get the great deal. That's B-O-U-Q-S dot com slash L-E-V-I-N. And for 25% off, you put in the code also Levin. And remember, Valentine's Day isn't just for lovers. How about your best friend? Show your best friend some love. How about your mom? How about your grandma? How about your daughter, your sister? You know, you think it's cold outside now? It's supposed to be a very cold Valentine's Day where I am. But wait until you forget Valentine's Day. The Books Co. is here to make your life easier, and they offer more than just roses. You'll find sweet treats, beautifully styled bouquets, plants, gifts, succulents on their site. This va- I'm getting hungry. This Valentine's Day, spread the book love with your first love, your forever love, and your loved ones. Here it is. Go to B-O-U-Q-S dot com slash Levin. Put in code Levin, but you need to act immediately. 
I must say, you know, I'm very hard on myself. You think I'm hard on other people? I'm harder on myself. So far, I think today's show, what is it, Thursday, is the best show of the week. When you are struggling to breathe and not to cough on the air, and I, I, I got to thank you all. You are the best. You stay with me no matter what. All you Levinites out there, you are the best. Even though you cringe now and then because you're, oh my God, what's he doing there? He's coughing, hacking. I've done everything I can to protect you from me, from that. So I want to thank you. But I come in here prepared like I do every day. We've got a remaining hour. It's going to be a very, very powerful hour like the last two. So I hope you'll stick with me. And we'll be right back. Broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877 877-381-3811. Well, America, I want you to know the Democrats are talking about impeachment again. So if you're really turned off by them, and if the growing Trump base is getting more and more energized, now you have more reason to do both. Because this is where they are. Uh, Unless they take over, they're not going to be happy. By the way, you know, earlier, we had talked about... uh, Bloomberg. I talked about him as an oligarch. Then there was this piece that I meant to mention to you from The Intercept, which I think is kind of left-wing, but it doesn't really matter to me. Mike Bloomberg is hiring so many operatives, local and state campaigns are starving for help. He's even buying his way onto Instagram posts and everything. And this guy's just throwing money everywhere. Are you going to resist this or are you going to embrace this? Oh, he's a moderate. How can you support Xi and the communist regime in China be a moderate on anything? Jennifer Leeper was on her last night of maternity leave with her second boy when Donald Trump was declared winner Dump. of the 2016 presidential election when she recovered from shock like millions of women across the nation. She decided she had to stop sitting on the political sidelines. She ran for a seat on the local board of education in Fairfield, Connecticut, and she won. And in 2018, she threw herself in the 2018 midterms, helping a Democratic state Senate campaign. Wow. And it goes on. And what they're trying to get at here, and I won't read it, it's actually a monotonous story, but the key is important. They can't even find local activists, you know, major operatives, because Bloomberg's buying them up. He's buying them up. Now that says something about the Democrat activists in the first place who are with him. He's just trying to flood the field, flood it with commercials. Listen to me, this is what he's doing. He's trying to monopolize the campaign. Flood the field with commercials. 
flood the field with operatives. You know, your own news service, which is significant, Bloomberg, is not going to even report on your candidacy. That's what they said. But they'll report on everybody else's. Don't run in Iowa where you can't win. Don't run in New Hampshire where you can't win. Game the system. Don't participate in any debates unless you absolutely must. And now, of course, even three dropped out earlier this week. So he doesn't have to lower himself. So he hasn't been in one of these debates. And they keep talking about him. As this fantastic moderate who can win. Can win what? All right, anyway, I wanted to point that out. Chuck Todd is anything but a journalist and anything but intelligent. Walks around, as you know, I've told you, with a uh, third grader's haircut. But he's arrogant, and he has nothing to be arrogant about. Smug. Or maybe that's just the look. Here he is yesterday, attacking the Attorney General. Now you know, whatever Chuck Schumer does, or whatever Nancy Pelosi does, Chuck Todd does. That's, that's the way it works. Cut seven, go. Are we at the point where we cannot trust a political appointee to be in charge of justice? Do you think we have to change the way we do this, create more of a CIA, FBI, Federal Reserve approach to appointments? Now, now think about that. Think about this moron. As they continue to institutionalize power and separate it from accountability. Accountability. Chuck Todd never raised that question when Eric Holder was Attorney General. Eric Holder is the most partisan, ideological, political, in-the-bag Attorney General in modern history. No question about that. He was the same as Deputy Attorney General during the Clinton administration. He never raised these questions then. Why didn't you do that, Chuck? And why don't you come on this show, you coward? You coward! Bring on uh, these clowns like Sheldon Whitehouse, for God's sakes. Go ahead. About some distance from um, the, the, the executive branch of some sort. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. An attorney general of some distance from the executive branch. Ladies and gentlemen, we have three branches of government. The attorney general's in the executive branch. The president's in charge of the executive branch. He has a third-grade haircut, but he clearly doesn't even have a third-grade understanding of social civics here. The fact of the matter is that you can't have a separate attorney general above and beyond. Can you imagine the danger of that? You'd have the crap that goes on in Israel. Can you imagine the power of that office? And for what? Because Bill Barr doesn't bend over backwards to Adam Schiff and to Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Todd? Chuck Todd, you're such a dishonest louse. You should be leaving journalism. You're destroying it. And do what you want to do. Be the head of the DNC. Be their political director. Whatever it is. And stop playing damn games. Everybody knows you're a fraud. Everybody. And I only want to hear from this idiot Sheldon Whitehouse, another hack from Rhode Island. 
Then there's David Gergen. David Gergen. Talk about chameleons. This guy has served every president, I think, since Grover Cleveland. I don't know. He's been there constantly. And what's his contribution? Nothing. But he's their go-to Republican, you see. They've got a few of them. Here he is on CNN today regarding the Roger Stone sentencing. Cut eight, go. And one of the first things the Nixon people had to do in, in, in covering up... So Watergate. there you go. It's, for, it's Nixon now. Everything's Nixon. Everything's Watergate. But even Nixon wasn't Trump. They're revitalizing the Nixon administration. They don't believe it. They do this all the time in order to destroy the existing... You know they wanted to impeach Ronald Reagan, right? On the Iran-Contra matter. There was a strong effort to impeach Ronald Reagan. Are you aware of that? There were efforts to impeach George W. Bush. Are you aware of that? Incredible. Go ahead. The Justice Department mm-hmm. and make sure they were under their thumb just as they tried to compromise the intelligence and the FBI. And... But it was a sort of a one-time thing for to cover up a particular episode. This is wide in scope. See, folks, this is worse. This is just unbelievable. Now, what exactly has Bill Barr done that's Watergate-like? What exactly is he covering up? What exactly is he obstructing? On the contrary... He's opening areas to examination that haven't been opened to examination before. That's not a cover-up. That's not interference. He was sandbagged in this Roger Stone case. So now it's Watergate worse than Watergate. It's systemic Watergate. Because Maine Justice had a problem with these four line prosecutors in Washington, D.C., two of whom are Mueller holdovers you got to be kidding me. If Roger Stone was to do seven to nine years, John Dean should do 112 years. What did he do, six months? Go ahead. Almost every big decision that's coming through the Justice Department now. Shut up, you a-hole. That's right, I said it. Somebody needs to call you what you are. On TV over and over and over again for decades. Useless. With your hyperbole. That's right. I called you what you are. Let it be repeated. Widely. Look at that lineup at CNN. What's that slob's name? Oh, yeah. Everybody gets it. See, Mark. Mark yells. Mark's mean. I am what I am. That's right. Bernstein. And John Dean and Gergen. Wow. 1970s throwback. Good job, CNN. Then we have Kurt Bardella. Who's that? Doesn't matter. It's Kurt Bardella. Former House Oversight Committee spokesman. Oh, that's good. Let's hear what Kurt Bardella has to say. It must be very, very important. Because he was on the morning schmo show. Banjo player from Deliverance. Boy, is this guy stupid. This guy, Joe Scott. Seriously, Mr. Badoo, is he dumb or what? And he doesn't do any research, doesn't do any prep. He just shows up and pops off. 
You know, it must be easy being a liberal and being on TV. Number one, you're not scrutinized. You don't have people trying to literally take you off the air. Number two, the more absurd you are, the bigger your social circles. Particularly with the left and the money left. And number three, you can literally be a moron. Like Joe Scarborough. And just show up. And just be a parakeet. As he stumbles through his statements. You know, you got to think of it this way. You know, the way the brain operates. Look at it, a hamster on a a hamster wheel. You know, moving like that. Just imagine it like that. Joe is like a... a, uh, What is it? Joe's like a pig on a hamster wheel. And I don't mean physically a pig. I mean just a heavy mammal on a hamster. He just clobbers. He just sort of... He's clumsy. He steps all over it. A hamster wheel doesn't move. It gets crushed. I know what I mean. Guinea pig on a hamster wheel. Ah, whatever. Here's Kurt Bardella. Cut nine. Go. I mean, the Justice Department now is basically his own personal law firm that he can use to... Good, you moron. That's terrific. There's 90,000 employees at the United States Department of Justice. It's his own personal law firm, ladies and gentlemen. In fact... The Justice Department was such an effective personal law firm of the President of the United States, there was no Mueller investigation. That's right. There was no effort by the senior level of the FBI to take out candidate Trump and then President Trump. No, no, no. It's his personal law firm. You don't understand. You're such a clown, Kurt Bardella. I don't even know who you are, but I know you're a clown. My wife gets mad when I say that. They like clowns, you know, the circus. What else can I call them? Court gesture? Something like that? We'll be right back. Mark Lovin. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest growing organizations in America. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead, A-M-A-C dot U-S. Now, who is the irregular American, and where is he or she from? Yep, yep, yep. Dustin, Lafayette, Louisiana, where, Mr. Producer? W-P-E-L, go, sir. Hey, Mark, how are you? I listen to you pretty much every day, man. I just wanted Thank to call you. in Thank and you. stick up for uh, Bernie and socialism a bit. Sure. Trying to do better than the uh, million-dollar watch guy yesterday. Oh, okay. Uh, um, to start off, I think we just need a um, 
look at China and ask, is China successful? Would you consider China a successful example of socialism? Because that's well, the first, well, well, first of all, uh, China's not socialist. It's communist. Um, and no, it's not successful at all, and I'll tell you why. Uh, because they have to steal our technology. Because American businesses that want to do business there have to surrender their proprietary information. Um, they have to give up 51% of control. So much of what China has done has been through brass knuckles, not their own development and technology. I'll give you a perfect example. Can you tell me five great inventions that came out of Red China? Man, we don't, we don't know about China. But no, 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 we know a lot about China. Can you tell me five great inventions that came out of Red China? What does that have to do with the success of their country? I'm explaining it. Okay, that's a bigger question. You think it's a successful country that has gulags with millions of people in it? That has nothing to do with the... You just asked me about the success of their country. You bounced from socialism, and I've explained to you that China is basically a a crypto-type crony uh, uh, Marxism-type economy. That is, uh, you're not going to listen to me. Why, why do you call me? Who's going to take our place? Why, why did you call me? Did because you ask me a question? Yes. Okay. You, you want to engage on the question? Oh, you, you want me to ask you another question? No, I, I want you to answer me. Why, is, why does China require American companies to give up their proprietary information, to give up 51% of ownership, and why do they spend hundreds of billions of dollars stealing technology from our corporations if they're so successful? Where's all their entrepreneurship? Question, man. All right, thanks for your call, bro. You don't let me finish, and you really have no interest in engaging. You're very tunnel-oriented. I really wanted to talk to that guy. I really did. But if you keep telling me that's not the question, it's not the question. It's the question to me. You ask me the question. Now look at that society. Does anybody want to live there? I think that's a good test. Who wants to live there? Raise your hand. The reverse point is, what I would have said to the gentleman is, his name's Dustin, right? I would have said, hey, Dustin, why don't you talk about the, the massive success of capitalism? China's not even close to the United States. Even the, uh, the medium household not even close to the United States. We don't have to steal technology from China. We don't have to compel Chinese companies to give us 51% or their proprietary information. We don't have to do any of these things to succeed. Why is it that China has to buy soybeans from us? Do we buy soybeans from China? Why is it that we came up with this brilliant innovation called fracking? Chinese didn't come up with that. I'm talking about the communist government. I don't want to hear about China 3,000 years ago. Well, I did invent gunpowder. Let's move it a little bit more current. Their jets. Just look at anything. Their automobiles. Their train system. Their buildings. Their health care. Still quite third world. Where they're achieving is in their military. And that's what all these regimes do. They steal our technology... They're a centralized uh, Marxist regime, and this is where they put their, their brain power, 
This is where they steal our technology mostly and so forth and so on. So socialism, quote-unquote, or Marxism, is not succeeding in China. They have to do all kinds of things in order to get where they are. Whereas all we have to do is embrace liberty. And this is the discussion I wanted to have with uh, Dustin, but he's not, it's not the discussion he wanted to have with me. That's right, Dustin, you can call again. But, you know, I want to have a give and take. I really want to engage. We'll be right back. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest growing organizations in America. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead. A-M-A-C dot U-S. Got your tongue? Cough up a furball and call 877-381-3811 right now from Mike Levin. If you listen to this show, you know we keep an eye on what's happening around the world and especially Israel. And, uh, you know, I saw a poll, I forget which one of the Israeli papers it was in, maybe a week, ten days ago. And the poll was... You know, if you voted directly for prime minister, who would you prefer? They have this arcane Italian-like system in Israel because that's what socialists do. They were founded by socialists and they set up a ridiculous form of government. So you have these minority parties and all the rest. It's a real headache. So uh, I don't think it's representative of very much. And here's why. Netanyahu had a double-digit lead over the number two, this uh, retired IDF General Benny Gantz. Double-digit lead. And yet he can't pull together a big enough coalition, or couldn't, to win the prime ministership. Now, why is that? You know, it's interesting. Israel used to be a left-of-center country. Now it's definitely a right-of-center country. Because of one individual in particular, and his name is Lieberman. Lieberman. This is a guy who hates Netanyahu. And he not only hates Netanyahu, he's former Likud, and he's angry that he was dissed by Likud. And there are other reasons I'm aware of, but I can't get into. So he says, look, he comes up with this... uh, this phony issue, he says, look, I, I can't any longer be part of a party that includes in its coalition these super-religious parties, as they call them, whose members won't serve in the military. 
I'm thinking, uh, what? And so they've had their two elections. They're going to have their third election on March 2nd. And he says, you know, until Netanyahu kicks these parties out of his coalition, he's not going to be part of a coalition with Netanyahu. Well, of course, Netanyahu can't kick them out because it's an important part of his coalition. And by the way, many of them are wonderful, wonderful people. So they get the stigma and Lieberman's part of that. The other hand, Lieberman says, look, I can't be involved with these Arab parties either. Not because they hate Arabs, but because these Arab parties hate Israel. That is, they do not believe in the state of Israel. You actually have political parties that seek votes that do not believe in their country. Why? Because they're really allied with the radical Palestinians. But there's a lot of Arabs in the state of Israel. So they get to vote, but they refuse to be part of any government. They're in the Knesset. And any uh, party other than their party really doesn't want them part of any government, given their position, which is, as you can imagine, very unpopular in Israel. But they've thrown their support behind this guy, Benny Gantz, who created this party, a phony party called the Blue and White Party. You know, what does the Blue and White Party stand for? Beats me. Beats me. It's a chameleon party, and Benny Gantz is a chameleon. But he can lead Israel. Lead Israel where? He announced the other day that when it comes to socioeconomic issues, he's actually quite liberal. But he also believes in the religious parties and religion. So he's trying to appeal to conservatives and, and at the same time to the leftists, particularly in Tel Aviv. All Netanyahu needs is for his vote to turn out in large numbers. He's not going to get the Arab votes. He doesn't even want them because of their stance. He's not going to get the left-wing parties that have joined with Benny Gantz. And he's, going to, he's not going to get our equivalent to the Susan Collins types. You know, he's not going to get them either. So the, the people of Israel who tend to be more conservative need to turn out in large numbers. They've been underperforming in certain parts of the state of Israel. Which is mind-boggling to me, given what's at stake in that country. This entire peace plan, as far as I'm concerned, is at stake if Netanyahu doesn't win. Benny Gantz's top advisors were Obama's top advisors. His pollster was Obama's pollster. Two of his top advisors referred to the president in one way or another as Adolf Hitler or referenced him. They refused to resign. They haven't even asked to resign. If Benny Gantz is elected with this coalition of everybody and nobody he will be a complete sellout in my view and he will be the puppet of the Democrat Party in the United States they're behind Benny Gantz this is why Obama's pollster is in Israel the Democrat Party wants to control and would control effectively this blue and white party they're not going to work with Trump because the Democrat candidates, you know, the, the former ambassador to Israel from the United States is this, this clown named Dan Shapiro. And he stayed in Israel, and I think he's part of some think tank. He's a J Street type, in my humble opinion. You know, the president of J Street, 
rubbing cheeks with Abbas, a terrorist. But that's not my point. You see all the intrigue? But the fact of the matter is, Gantz will work with the radical elements in the Democrat Party in the United States. I don't believe the peace deal will succeed. For Gantz, he doesn't care about the so-called, I call them so-called settlers because it sounds like, you know, they're coming in from outside to take territory. This, this land has belonged to the Jews for 3,000 years or more. So you're talking about Judea and Samaria. He doesn't give a damn about those people because they're not going to vote for him for the most part. The problem is they need to turn out in bigger numbers for Netanyahu. And there are others. And there are others who are not turning out the vote. I don't understand it. But anyway, this guy Lieberman, back to him. So what is it? 120 votes or seats in the Knesset. So you need 61 seats to be the prime minister. A coalition, however you get there. You know how many he controls, Mr. Producer? Eight. Eight. Eight seats. And because he dislikes Netanyahu, because he's, dis- uh, he's, he's, what? he's left the Likud party, he wants to be this kingmaker power guy, he basically has the support of secular Russian Jews who are relatively conservative. You know what he said the other day? He is prepared to be in a coalition with Israel's left-wing parties, which are pro-Palestinian. He is prepared to be in a coalition with Israel's left-wing parties. So unless the Likud supporters and others, other parties... Others, right of center, come out in large numbers. It's going to be a tough night for Israel, a tough night for those of us who love Israel. My audience, you, as an example. So it's very, very strange what's taking place. But this guy, Lieberman, he's the Svengali. He's a disgrace. He's the one who's brought Israel to this point. And you know what else is amazing to me? And they talk about this in Israel. The greatest relationship Israel's ever had with the United States is occurring right now. And all Netanyahu's opposition can think of is destroying Netanyahu. Rather than building on this relationship, which is a pinprick in history. That is, you have this tiny little opening to do as much as you possibly can with the United States that is your closest ally ever. Little pinprick opportunity. Little bit of light. That's it. Instead, like in our own country, the equivalent of the Pelosi types and Schumer types and the Svengali types are dragging down this Prime Minister and not only seek to defeat him, seek to imprison him. The left and the media are no different in Israel than in the United States. In some ways, much worse. There's not conservative talk radio, and there's not Fox, except the satellite Fox. It's appalling. Netanyahu is Israel's Churchill. And the British were foolish enough to throw Churchill out after World War II. 
Let's see if the Israelis are as smart as people say, or if they're no, no smarter than most. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest growing organizations in America. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead, A-M-A-C dot U-S. All right, Mr. Producer, to whom shall I speak? I don't want to do any more news. I don't want to do any clips. Not that we did any clips. To whom shall I speak? The great WABC, George in New Jersey. Go ahead. Hi, Mark. Thank you. Great show. Thank you. Love it. So I want to make sure to bring several points um, from the person who lived in a communist country like Soviet Union, in a social democrat country like Sweden, and now I live in the U.S., and I love it. So there is a reason why most of the people from communist countries or socialist countries came to U.S. and make it successful life, not mm-hmm. the other way around. So I believe personally... Wait a minute, uh, slow down. This is a great point. Yeah. It's an obvious point, but it I, wasn't so obvious yeah, to me. Obvious. Pe- people aren't going to China to live. Absolutely. Neither actually any other socially oriented countries from U.S. And, and you're right. There's not this great population movement to the Scandinavian countries. Absolutely not. Uh, contrary to that, the other way around, many people even from successful countries, like a small one, like, again, okay, Scandinavian countries are not very... But you know what? Even in our own country, the population of American citizens isn't moving to the more, I'll use them, the more socialist states. You don't see populations moving into New York, moving into New Jersey, moving into Illinois, moving into California, other than illegal aliens and so forth. The growth areas are the freer areas. Absolutely right. And there's a reason for that. And I believe personally, like when I'm analyzing actually my life, for example, and why I did my choice, and many, like millions of other people made the choice to come to U.S., is the only, like the social or communist-oriented people, I believe, that divided on three types, three categories. Either they're lazy and they don't don't want to really don't want to work. They want a free perks, and they're angry for like more successful people, or stupid people that really believe in some picture that don't really exist in the real life, like emotional people that really just like to believe in fantasies, or the people who likes power. And we want to be 
and control the other people. There are only three categories, unfortunately. I think you have that about right. No, that's, that's the only thing. I mean, because people who are really pitching these stupid ideas, these people don't really follow whatever they pitch the other population. They do not believe those principles. They're all quite rich and successful, and they want to control, because it's much easier to control poor people, because all you need to always do uh, make a picture and make everybody believe in some really bright future, but that future doesn't never come, because in social countries, it's all about making everybody equal poor, not making everybody equally rich. And, and it's also about not human beings. It's about an abstract ideology, a fantasy that is imposed on human beings. It is contrary to human nature. It's contrary to the human condition. And so the end result is violence, poverty, and hell. Absolutely. And, I mean, history, like, people really just, all they need to do is just to go to the history. And I know actually many people don't like history. They're not interested. They're more interested in just to listening to some fantasies and weird uh, stories. They all like to read about and and listen to how to Mm -hmm, make rich mm -hmm. people and take from rich people, giving to poor people. Very simple. Uh, Many people falling into that uh, uh, stupid ideas. Mm-hmm. But they don't really understand the sequences of the consequences of that. And but history already showed multiple times in the past almost hundred years that socialist or communist countries they do not succeed and those models they cannot succeed. America, United States that country that succeeded with a model that is absolutely has nothing with social oriented or communist ideology. And, 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 it's, and it's very easy for people who benefit and luxuriate in this society to talk about how much better it would be in another society because they don't live in that society. It's all fantasy. Your call was absolutely outstanding. Thank you, friend. We salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, emergency personnel. I want to thank each and every one of you for being here tonight. How about we do it again tomorrow? I can tell I'm getting stronger and stronger here. God bless you. Be well. Thank you.